Okay, let's try this again. Try not to touch that boom again for you here, if I can avoid it, but we all know how that goes around here. Uh, hi, everybody. It's me, Steve, your host, and welcome back once again to the Baked and Awake podcast. If you're new and just getting here for the first time, uh, please allow me to give you your one and only warning that, yes, this show is called Baked and Awake, and we smoke weed on the program, Okay. So sometimes, you might even say to yourself, this guy is audibly stoned. Correct. Okay. Doing my best here, you guys. This is a show about cannabis and conspiracies. We do a couple different things here. If you want the content that might be in the title, and maybe that's something that you got to wade through a few minutes of me talking about the devil's lettuce to get to, Find that scrub button if it's, you know, taking too long for you. Hit that 1.25 or 1.5x speed button. Or feel free to keep it pushing and go find a different podcast to listen to because I'm not changing what I'm doing here right now anytime soon. Not for anybody. Okay? Put too much work into it. Put too much time in on it. And this is where we started. This was the concept from day one. Get fucking high. Talk about weird fucking shit. And that's all the F-bombs I'm going to drop today. Talked about this at the beginning of last episode as well. I'm just putting it out there. More forcefully. Because I'm feeling my oats. Alright. Getting ready to delete Facebook in the next few weeks. Getting ready to delete Instagram in the next few weeks. That's right. I'm going to delete myself basically from the internet because between those two platforms, holy hell, what do they own? 90% of everybody's social media posts and our egos and our self-image. I've had it. I've been I've been part of it since the start. I've been part of it since the, you know, MySpace days. Um, I'm as hopelessly addicted to social media as I ever was to Marlboro cigarettes. And I just don't need it. I'm about to turn 45 years old. And this is not where I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my life on the internet. I'm going to find my news different places. I'm going to find out what you guys are up to and what you're caring about in different places. I'm not actually leaving the entire internet. I'm leaving two platforms that are highly toxic and that I have, in my opinion, finally gotten to a place in my head and in my heart where I'm ready to leave them behind. I'm not even saying outgrow them. I'm just leaving them behind for good or ill. It may be podcast suicide. I don't know. Somehow I doubt it though, based on the lack of engagement I get in both places to my posts about the content. I'm really hoping that I have real listeners here in podcast land, here in YouTube land, in the internet, in the wider internet in general and around the world that aren't relying on Facebook and Instagram to hear about my next episode, that are actually subscribed to the podcast and getting it directly in their pockets week in and week out, and that I'm going to be able to continue to grow this show that I care so much about. So that's my hope. 
Over the next month or so, as I wind down my activities on Facebook and Instagram, I'll be sharing over and over again the places where people can find me. But for those of you sitting here with me right now, and again, if you're new, always, always get at me at bakedandawake.com. All right? I pay for that domain and have that website for us together to keep that two-way line open and available. Consider that my internet address. Talk to us at bakedandawake.com is the email address. You can always email me about the show, about topics, ideas, or just to get in touch with me, Steve. So I'm not dying. I'm not disappearing from the internet. We're just stepping away from the two worst offenders of privacy abuse and toxic culture and stupid back-asswords censorship and providing platforms for hate speech at the exact same time. I could do a whole episode on it, but we're not going to. That's five minutes of that BS and we're done. We're moving on. Got an amazing episode for you here today. It's going to be tight. It's going to be under an hour, I'm sure of it. Um, I'm going to introduce you to a... I don't know what this guy is. He's an old college professor, died a few years back. They call him an ethicist. I think he was at UC Berkeley. I'm going to be reading you a passage from the first pages of a novel that this man wrote back in the early 1970s. I promise you it sounds like it could have been written yesterday. You guys will be the judge of that. After we look at that passage, read it together, um, I'll give you a little more background on this author, uh, whose name is Garrett Hardin. Okay. Let's jump right into it, though. As we get ready to jump in, though, I think we better smoke because this is some spacey stuff. Let's, uh, let's use some of this purple weed I got right here, um, which I think is Mendo Purple, and I don't remember the brand. Um, I did buy this at the shop at a weed shop. Because it looks so pretty, and I was like, what's that? It's how much? Oh, give me an eighth of that right now. So I grabbed it. And it's been smoking just fine. Um, please join me if you part partake. And again, email me anytime. Tell me about what strains you smoke and what you love. If you haven't heard me mention a strain that you're in love with, and you'd like me to try to hunt it down out here in the Pacific Northwest... I'd love to try it out and then speak to my own personal experience with it as well. Used to do strain of the week, you know, all the time, pretty regularly, but, you know, that's something that'll come and go, you know. Um, we can call Mendo Perps the strain of the week. Um, maybe I'll put some info in the description about the background on this strain. We're not going to do it on the mic today. Just a little, just a little morning maintenance toke. The old wake and bake on baked and awake. Getting ready to read the introductory paragraphs from Exploring New Ethics for Survival. Subtitle The Voyage of the Spaceship Beagle by Garrett. Pardon. Chapter 1. 
embarkation. Morning. It must be morning, Jerry Wood thought, because it was getting lighter. He pulled the blanket higher over his face, trying to blot out the necessity of getting up, but it didn't work. Grudgingly, he opened his eyes a slit, looking for the sun on the horizon. He saw it, and suddenly he remembered it wasn't the real sun, but a contraption worked by projectors and rheostats. He wasn't on Earth. He was on a spaceship, the good ship Beagle. He started, now wide awake. Stretched out before him, a hundred feet below, was a rolling plain, green with grass and spotted with trees, reaching to the horizon nearly two kilometers distant, where it met the transparent plastic bubble overhead. That inverted bowl we call the sky, where under crawling. The celestial mariners were to live and die for who knew how long before they reached their destination. Wood himself, a newspaper reporter on Earth, continuing his profession here, was, with a dozen others, encased in a jagged structure that looked like a small and somber mountain to the plainsmen below, but was really a cleverly contrived mass of one-way glass perfectly transparent to those inside, but quite opaque to those on the outside. The outsiders were to fulfill the primary mission of the spaceship. Those inside were to observe and report back to Earth. If absolutely necessary for the survival of the mission, they could intervene in the affairs of the plainsmen. Such intervention was however, to be avoided, if at all possible. The plainsmen were to know nothing of their observers, who had been put on board the spaceship first, in absolute secrecy. The entire plane was thoroughly bugged with microphones and miniaturized television eyes. Everything done or said outside the mountain observatory was piped to the observers inside the mountain. The mountain itself, solidly built and virtually impregnable, was liberally posted with signs, warning the plainsmen not to touch it lest they disturb the sensitive, automated control mechanisms inside. As a further precaution, it was thoroughly electrified externally. The shock it delivered was just short of lethal. All this was known to people back on Earth, who received periodic reports from Wood. But observing and reporting the activities of the Voyagers in space were the secondary goal of the mission. The primary goal, Earthlings were told, was to reach and colonize another world, somewhere out in the galaxy. So they were told, 
but it was not true. The primary mission was the activity itself and spending the astronomical sums it cost. The venture had its origin in an unsolved puzzle known as the, quote, pyramid problem. It had often been remarked that no large capitalistic nation in modern times had ever achieved a balanced economy without resorting to some kind of institutionalized waste. Perhaps it was always so. Was this not the explanation of the wasteful building of pyramids in ancient Egypt? And in medieval Europe, did not the erecting of cathedrals serve the same function, namely keeping society on an even keel? In modern times, it could be argued that fantastically expensive technological war served as a social balance wheel, preventing something even worse than external wars, namely civil wars. According to the Marxists, only capitalism stands in need of the balance wheel of waste. Capitalist economies denied the assertion categorically, but they were hard put to defend their position. Certainly, for a half century, the United States had not achieved peaceful, non-wasteful stability. In the Depression of the 30s, Massive public works programs had been instituted to mitigate the sufferings of the unemployed, with only equivocal success. Not until industrial preparations for World War II began in earnest did the American economy return to a state of health. Then there was the Korean War. Then the Southeast Asian War. Then... The trouble with the pyramid thesis was that it was neither proved nor disproved. It was like the four-color problem in topology. Plausible and not disproved, but it might not be true either. Can capitalism survive without its metaphorical pyramids? As the Asian war ground to a halt, the president's economic advisors were told to come up with an answer. The result was a Scotch verdict, not proven. Since, however, the nation was faced with the eminently practical problem of survival, the economists went beyond the bare statement of the indubitably true and described some possible courses of action in a top-secret document. The heart of the document was this. From this point onward, we will assume that the Marxist position is true. We do not for a moment think that it is, but we hold that actions based on this assumption deserve the name of, quote, conservative, in the very best sense. If the Marxist position proves not to be true, no permanent harm will have been done by momentarily assuming that it is. Assuming, then, the correctness of the Marxist analysis, the following are the principal lines of action open to the nation. 
1. Abandon free enterprise, replacing it with a planned totalitarian state. 2. Deindustrialize production so as to remove economies of scale, increase efficiency, and produce full employment. 3. Permit or even encourage political corruption within the formation of a nationwide Tammany-type organization, thus supporting the population in a different way. 4. Disestablish the welfare state and let simple, natural selection eliminate the unemployed and their families by starvation. 5. Liquidate the unemployed by positive action. 6. Lower the population size to the point where economies of scale and manufacture do not prevent full employment. In parentheses, in passing, we note that options 4 and 5, to be successful, must in fact achieve the goal of option 6. 7. Embark on a course of perpetual pyramid building, to speak metaphorically. Needless to say, we regard option 7 as the least undesirable of the lot, and recommend that the administration immediately set about implementing it. The question is, what sort of pyramids shall we build first? The obvious answer was space, the most expensive pyramid known to man. For space is expensive. Don De Silva noted that the entire budget of the National Science Foundation in 1969, $400 million, was just barely more than the cost of a single aborted moonshot in 1970. The Apollo 13 at $384 million. Surely, as De Silva put it, the most expensive legal abortion in history. But such professional carpings had little influence on the decision-makers, most of whom believed, or professed to believe, that President Kennedy had been right back in 1962 when he said, we must go to the moon because, like Mount Everest, it is there. Pause for a puff. I found this book in my home, by the way. This is a paperback that was recovered from a uh, friend of the family who had passed away sometime in the last year or two. Got a lot, a lot, a lot of esoteric books from this um, woman. Books on masonry, uh, books and curriculum from uh, the Order of Rosicrucians, uh, I mean, Aleister Crowley stuff, Edgar Casey stuff, Emmanuel Velikovsky stuff. Uh, and almost every time I reach down 
and pick something up out of one of these boxes of hers, I come up with something wild like this. Um, this introduced me to this guy, Garrett Hardin, who I believe is a grandfather of a lot of the thought processes and underpinnings of the philosophies of like modern libertarian and conservative thinking jury's out that's why we're looking at this together right we can talk about this and you can tell me what you think of these ideas but that list right there sounds like it could have been carved on the side of the Georgia Guidestones. If you're not familiar with them, well, feel free to, you know, read ahead and run off and go find out about the Georgia Guidestones because they're absolutely buck nutty and you want to know about them. We'll probably get to them in a future episode. Other friends of mine, I think Bones and Tubbs did a good episode on the Georgia Guidestones, so you can check out the Bones and Tubbs podcast. Um, they're unfailingly excellent. So, Speaking of weird libertarian fucks, love you guys. Back to the reading. This, however, might be criticized as an irrational reason. And so the president's advisors set out to manufacture a rational one for the new enterprise. That was Kennedy's statement of the need to go to space, right? Fortunately, by this time, science had for so long been kept the creature of government that truth could be bought like barbecue buns. The president of the Walla Walla Institute of Technology was told what was needed and given $500 million for a, quote, feasibility study. In three weeks, the Institute scientists found that a space spectacular was indeed feasible. Thereupon, they were awarded a $60 billion performance grant. And they performed. In less than six months, the Orbital Electronic Cybernetic Seismologists of WWIT produced absolutely convincing evidence that there was a high probability that the Earth would go completely off its rocker in less than 50 years, and that it was therefore necessary to start immediately on a program to save the precious germ plasm of Homo sapiens by exporting some of it to distant and safer planets. The WWIT conclusions and program were kept under security wraps until the president was ready to announce a practical response to this threat. The program, called CRASH, Cybernetic Rocket Accelerator Service, HASTE. The coinage wasn't very good, but acronyms are better than arguments. Crash lifted the spirits of the war-deprived people to new heights. The construction of the spaceship began immediately, and reports of its progress dominated the media from that time on. Well, here we are, said Jerry to himself, looking out at the plainsmen moving below, 
on our way to Alpha Centauri to look for planets. Four and three-tenths light years away. 25 million million miles. 480 years travel time, according to their computer-generated timetable. And if Alpha Centauri had no planets, or if all of them were too hot or too cold, too heavy or too light, or blanketed with ammonia or cyanide, then they would have to set sail again. In parentheses, set sail. Technology plays havoc with language. Set rockets. Here was an interesting problem for the journalist. Anyway, they would have to blast off on another tack, looking for a more suitable and more distant solar system. After Alpha Centauri, there was Epsilon Indy to investigate, then Sigma Draconis, Beta Hydri, and HR753A. HR753A was 22 light years away. A long trip. Would success forever recede from them? Were they to become a celestial flying Dutchman? No matter. However far the beagle might wander, it was Wood's duty to notice to note carefully everything that happened and to laser a generous account of it back to Earth to let those left behind know what the space wanderers were doing. They must know because they must not be permitted to think about their own misery. They must never start to ask questions. Standing at the edge of his bedroom, leaning against the ceiling-to-floor glass of the one-way mirror, Wood looked at the scene below. It was a smaller world than he had left, but it was not too different. It was newer, shinier, and neater, but basically it resembled the better parts of the United States. The resemblance was no accident. It was like home because it had been made that way for profound political reasons. The reasons traced back to the early 70s, to the time of the short-lived ecology kick. There had been something like a panic in those days when ecologists discovered the environment and the world discovered ecologists. DDT is poisoning the world, they said, killing everything. Peregrine falcons yesterday, pelicans today, and politicians tomorrow. Soon it will poison diatoms in the ocean, and we will all die of oxygen starvation. Industrial sludge has killed Lake Erie, Mercury from paper mills has turned our fish into a lethal luxury. Automobile smog is suffocating us in the cities. 
and the greenhouse effect of carbon dioxide in the air will roast us all in our beds, unless the curtain effect of airplane jet trails freezes us to death first. You guys, I didn't even read this far before hitting record. But, I mean, we've got the chemtrails narrative woven into this giant concept in 1972, two years before yours truly was even born. The term is conspiracy realist. And to paraphrase a saying by I know not who, something I have said before, I will observe again for you now. This is my own soliloquy right now, obviously. No matter what you imagine the government is or isn't doing to you and all of its people, the truth is far far worse than anything you've thought up. Yeah, we better we better puff a little bit more. Holy crap, this is craziness. There it is, bang. This author uh, spent most of his adult life as a, I think, a sitting professor at UC Berkeley teaching ethics and, like, economics. Okay, so professors teach people who go out into the world and do things. Uh, now we're switching out the bowl for um, a fresh strain forum cookies. From my one of my very best buddies. Um, and it's my very best weed. So we'll read just a little bit more of this intro together. And then we'll talk a little bit more about the author himself. Smoking my boys homegrown right after that Mendo Perp store-bought stuff. It's dumb. There's no comparison. I, I went the right progression. I went the right direction. I didn't. I stepped into flavor as opposed to away from flavor. Put it that way. So let's just read that last sentence again just for fun. It's like a giant run-on. 
sentence graph, my favorite kind of sentence. There had been something like a panic in those days. When ecologists discovered the environment and the world discovered ecologists. I'll tone down my weird ecologist voice this time. DDT is poisoning the world, they said. Killing everything. Peregrine falcons yesterday. Pelicans today. And politicians tomorrow. Soon it will poison diatoms in the ocean and we will all die of oxygen starvation. This is, this is the complete modern global warming narrative, right? But not coming from the right here, or not coming from the left and from like a groundswell. It's coming from a mouthpiece for the right and conservatism. Industrial sludge has killed Lake Erie. Mercury from paper mills has turned our fish into a lethal luxury. Automobile smog is suffocating us in the cities, and the greenhouse effect of carbon dioxide in the air will roast us all in our beds. In parentheses, interestingly, is our line. Unless the curtain effect of airplane jet trails freezes us to death first. Now, everybody who talks about chemtrails and stuff always says, hey, this isn't new. They've been talking about this for decades. Right now, this is me as a member of one generation speaking to both my own and those of you who are listening who are a little younger. Look at this shit, you guys. This is how a whole generation or age of people gets programmed with the narrative that you're born with and that thereafter you question at your peril. Back to the book. The author goes on. A little bit of this kind of stuff goes a long way. In ancient times, absolute monarchs disemboweled messengers for less. Today, we are not much different. But now, the absolute monarch is the people. Spelled P-E-E-P-U-L-L. In quotes. So he was doing a little bit of the SpongeBob derpy me people. During the 1970s, the people, still spelled the same way, finally got sick and tired of the apocalyptic rantings of Paul Ehrlich. And one fine night, after he had given a rabble-rousing speech at the Marblehead Junior College, he was tarred and feathered by the Youth for American Freedom, loaded into a cart from the town museum, and pulled to the edge of town, where he was thrown ignominiously into the Fort Mudge Memorial Dump. A great sigh of relief arose from the people, whose patience had been taxed beyond endurance. Patriots can take only so much. By this time, Americans had discovered the price of ecology. In the beginning, they had hoped that ecological reform could be carried out on a business-as-usual basis. Pick up a beer can here. Sweep up the sidewalks there. And scold your neighbor. 
That was a pattern of good behavior they understood. Oh, yes, and go to church on Sunday. But the more ecologists talked, the more apparent it became that only the most widespread reforms could put the world on a sound ecological footing. At this point, everyone dug in his heels. Ecology was attacked from the right as a communist conspiracy, dedicated to the destruction of the American way of life. Doesn't sound familiar at all. Ecologists, it was said, wanted to make industries pay for the use of the water and air, which it is everyone's natural right to use. Ecologists sought to destroy the American family because it produced too many children. Ecologists intended to subject every new product to a lengthy testing procedure before certifying it for public use, thus making further technological progress impossible. In a word, these blessed ecologists wanted to remove all joy and spontaneity from life. Spokesmen for the left said that the whole ecology kick was just a cop-out. Ecologists were more interested in saving a redwood tree than they were in saving the life of a little black child in the inner city. Ecologists were more interested in finding a nesting place for the downy woodpecker than they were in building apartments for exploited minorities. Ecologists cared more for the natural rights of wild animals than for the civil rights of their yellow man. <laughs> their yellow, their fellow man. Was that a Freudian slip? I don't know. Plainly, the leftists said ecology was just a capitalist conspiracy to perpetuate the enslavement of the exploited. And I know those of you who are anything like me who consume a lot of fringe topic podcasts and follow a lot of fringe topic uh, YouTube researchers and speakers and things like that, we've heard all this absolutely nonstop coming from both sides. I mean, these are these are the Alex Joneses and the David Ikes and everybody. I mean, you know, those are, I'm, I'm naming two who will never ever, you know, give one little uh, rat's patootie that I mentioned their names because they know it. they've been in that, you know, lane for decades. <clears throat> None of this is new, you guys, and this stuff has been implanted fully into my entire generation's minds and those of my parents, your grandparents' lives. Uh, not a one of them has an original thought in their head. Um... <laughs> I'm telling you right now, it's all been put there into our heads from the day we woke up and were fucking born. If there was a TV in that house, it was programming this into us all. The The polarity has been there. That, that intractable opposition of the illusory left and right. All of it.
we'll just finish this page. Unintentionally, ecology brought peace to America. The radical right and the radical left, finding they had a common enemy, joined forces to eliminate that enemy. The tarring and feathering of Paul Ehrlich at Marblehead touched off the ecology program. Barry Commoner was hung from the stainless steel gateway arch in St. Louis, where his body was left until the buzzards, too especially imported from South America for the occasion, picked his bones clean. Gordon Orions was pushed out of a helicopter onto a field of sharpened bamboo stumps, while his sidekick, Ed Pfeiffer, had a gallon of herbicide poured down his throat. Ed died in exquisite agony to the ineffable ecstasy of all right-thinking people. It's a fucking nightmare, you guys. <laughs> this shit. So sensationalist. Um, maybe they're creating a mythology, right? Lamont Cole was drawn and quartered by a delegation of the American Society of Agricultural Entomologists, led by their honorary president, Philip Handler, while John Milton, the naturalist, not the poet, was tied to the ground in the ungulate cage at the zoo and trampled to death by wildebeests. Ray Cowles, who saw peril in rockets, death in babbling brooks, and population in everything, was simply shocked. Ralph Nader, Victor, Victor Yanacone, Buzz Halling, John Cantlin, and Ed Devey disappeared without a trace. Garrett Hardin, the notorious abortionist, was castrated with a dull aluminum spoon. The program was short, bloody, and sweet. When it was over, a feeling of well-being, the like of which had not been sensed since Salem, swept across the country. What's wrong with us? In capitals, crowds would ask and answer with a thunderous, Nothing! We're all right, Jack. An American, it was decided, could do no wrong. As economists had been pointing out for years, if the advice of ecologists had not been followed from 1776 onward, development in the United States would have been so stifled that the nation would never have become more than a tiny cluster of villages on the eastern seaboard. If you want progress, they said, you've got to pay the price. The people decided that they were willing to pay the price and closed their ears henceforth to the ecological audits. Freed of the incubus of the doom merchants, the American economy took off like a rocket. The GNP soared to 15,000 billion in less than a decade. In the next election, the presidency was won on a firm anti-ecology plank by G. Morticia Peewee, the first undertaker to rise to that high office. She was the richest woman in the United States. Her chain of more than 60,000 funeral homes 
the Progress Memorial Slumber Parlors, had a clash flow exceeding that of General Motors. She was the best known and most called upon servant of the public in America. She won by a landslide on the campaign slogan, The Final Solution to Ecology? Bury it. Okay, I told you I was going to keep this under an hour, and I want to. I want to leave you with some homework. I didn't even finish the intro to this book. This book is bonkers, you guys, okay? And so what I did in prep for getting ready to introduce you to this episode is I watched a couple of YouTube videos of Garrett Hardin in his later years in interviews with people. Uh, so I do have a bit of a feel for what his, you know, more mature later years positions uh, sort of looked and sounded like. Um and he sounds, you know, really rational and reasonable in a lot of ways. But then when you just pause for a moment and sit with the, the concepts that he's not just like dancing around about, but in fact, like pounding, you know, carrying the flag for and marching with for decades and, and speaking loudly and clearly on it, you heard, you, you know, you heard how he included himself in that list of ecologists that were purged in his on program here. But this guy wasn't purged, was he? He lived his whole life. He, he wrote this book in 72. At this time, he had already written a very famous piece, a thought experiment known as The Tragedy of the Commons. Here is your homework. Uh, I'll give you a couple of links where uh, YouTubers do wonderful jobs of explaining this, but let me try to give you my version of the tragedy of the commons this is his thought experiment that has gone on to become a like mindset that and a uh, meme that is repeated in like halls of legislation all around the world and organizations like you know the floor of the united nations and other places people who are high up in these um, bodies and active in these bodies who are making policies and laws that affect us all have been inoculated, you know, at an early age with some of these concepts, including this. The tragedy of the commons posits that you have a circumstance that we will explain that could be applied to smaller or larger groups all around the world and uh, cultures and economies and industries. And it is this. We will use an analogy of sheep herders and a pasture. This pasture is shared by, let's say, an undetermined number of sheep herders is a public, unowned, you know, communist pasture. There's no signs regulating that you can use it or not use it. And uh, our sheep herders in this region of the world live around it and have free access to it and can walk their herds down to it. Now, this pasture is a finite size. Let's say it's one acre. And it's ability to support animals is directly tied to the you know health of the soil the uh therefore the health of the grass that grows upon it and the amount of that grass and there's sort of a finite upper limit to what that acre can produce especially when also being uh grazed upon so the, in the tragedy of the commons mr hardin posits that at, at all times things will slowly progress from 
something resembling egalitarian use of the pasture space to a situation where one or all of the individual herders will begin to try to game the system or cheat to harvest more benefits for their flock from that shared communal resource. They will do this by grazing their sheep for longer than the other members of the community, just leaving them there. They'll do this by adding sheep to their flock instead of bringing four or five. And let's say this acre, right, our hypothetical acre can support, you know, 12 sheep continuously throughout the growing season. And maybe it has to rest over the winter, every winter, right? But people are doing different stuff and, and, and pasturing their animals differently in, in different regions and in different time of year, right? So 12 sheep to this acre. When you bring, let's say, you got a farmer to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west, let's just like not even worry about you know, people coming from far and wide to try to graze the field. Let's just say the neighboring four farmers. One of those four, the north, south, east, or west, will try to bring an extra sheep to graze on the field. What happens? We've now exceeded the, we're at 13 sheep or more. Maybe each farmer brings an extra sheep to the field. They used to bring you know, three each, but they all had babies, right? So the next season they come back and they've got four each. And we're at 16 sheep when the acre can support 12. Well, maybe all 16 sheep live, but they've all taken a, you know, 10 or 15% deficit in calories compared to what they should have, or 20% deficit in calories compared to what they should have, so they're not as big. They're, they don't yield as much meat. They don't yield as high-quality wool, perhaps. Their population rate doesn't continue to increase at the rate that it would otherwise if the animals had been maintained at optimum health and optimum population levels. So the tragedy of the commons is this, that in these capitalistic but uncontrolled markets um, with shared resources that the, the, the common people will never communicate with one another, will never iterate their own best practices and rules that ensure long-term stewardship of the shared resource, will never uh, come together and help one another in cases of um, imbalanced resources and deficits that, you know, they might otherwise mitigate readily through their own surplus. In Hardin's model, none of that ever happens. These these herders don't get together and say, hey, Bob, why did you bring an extra sheep? It's looking a little bare out here, bud. It's kind of thin, you know. Shouldn't we figure something else out? Did you have a rough season? Is your other pasture not producing? What's up? You know, there's 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 no provision for that. And and so I'm gonna pause for a minute and make sure I drop the name of the woman who won a Nobel 
Peace Prize or a Nobel Prize for economics for using a research-based approach and spending like a decade or more on it to like categorically refute the tragedy of the commons and everything that was supposed by the thought experiment through like real-world empirical data. Uh, so give me a second. Okay, thank you. Pause button magic. So it it, it 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 her name is Eleanor Ostrom. Okay, and she won a Nobel Prize in economics in two thousand nine. She was the first woman to receive what they called the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences. The crux of it was she performed an analysis of economic governance, and her position was that her work had demonstrated how common property could be successfully managed by the groups using it. That's a very, very nice way in Wikipedia and a very succinct way of saying she tore the tragedy of the commons apart systematically and held it up to the light and showed that people do indeed do all the things I just described when sharing crucial resources for their communities and their societies. Coming up on an hour, going to wrap it pretty much there. Maybe we'll take a few minutes at the beginning of the next episode to talk about that some more. Um, I did have a couple other things that I would have liked to talk about uh, had I not been so windy, right? Uh, Hightimes.com reported this week, and as did every other you know place in the world, the 420 bill is in Washington, D.C. I think the um, House of Representatives voted yes on it, um, and it's going to the Senate next. So uh, that's um, Oregon uh, Earl Blumenauer uh, is the senator who I think raised this on the floor this would be the like the full heavy duty deregulation descheduling um interstate commerce allowing you know pretty open federal government position on cannabis they would still leave this to the states individually as to what they want to do it's big news i'll leave a link in the show notes for you on that i also still do have lingering thoughts about my friend bartleby the scrivener from my last episode, I read Melville's Bartleby the Scrivener, A Tale of Wall Street in full. And uh, it's a story that I loved from childhood and that I absolutely loved revisiting. I, I believe, after you listen to it, if you haven't already, please go back and check it out. But after you listen to it, if you've been paying attention to my Tartarian saga and uh, Mud Flood you know, related content, I came away from Bartleby with the distinct impression that Melville was leaving us with a little, a character who was inspired by or who maybe was a breadcrumb of a Tartarian era. Bartleby strikes me as somebody who is out of place and time, and 
who was merely existing, not even really doing the best he could anymore. He was seriously winding down like a clock that wasn't getting wound back up at the time of the author's creation and the narrator's relation of the character sketch of him, which we read. Bartleby might have been a diminished giant at sea in an era that was the dawning of the new age who didn't know how to relate to the people he saw around him however superficially they might resemble him he was utterly alien to them and they to he and at a certain point the last cogent sentiment that Bartleby had left to express to those who would attempt to press upon him the responsibilities and duties of a member of their society, he could only object with the hollow, hollow phrase. I would prefer not to. <laughs> 